0: Good morning. So if I were to say the word that is in the title of the sermon, idol, what picture would come to your mind? Because probably what it is, is it's some guy that looks very strange and he's foreign to us and there's a little gold or wooden statue and, and this person in some faraway land is bowing down to this statue and you're like, yeah, that's an idol. And you would be correct, that is an idol. But what if I told you that idolatry is one of the core issues of your life and that you are inundated with idolatry day in and day out, even if the word like only comes up in a great, great, rare instant. If I were to tell you the words of John Calvin, the heart, the human heart is a factory of idols. That something in you is always producing an object of worship, an object to love, an object to hope in, an object to bank your satisfaction on. And if you just had that, you'd have life. What if I were to tell you, you are an idolater, and I am. Because my affection slip so easily from Jesus alone to something he made. Someone he made and my hopes rise and fall on that person or that thing see we have a heart that's a factory of idols and that combines with we live the most unexamined lives in probably the history of the world right because if my thoughts start to go there too often all i have to do is click the radio on well, I'm sorry, we don't do radios anymore. All I have to do is click like, my, uh, my Spotify playlist and here comes music. Here comes something to drown out the silence. Right? Or, or all I have to do is if things get too quiet and I start actually looking down into my heart and evaluating my life, then all I have to do is pop up social media and I can scroll and I can numb and I can distract. And so... In that process, without any self-reflection, we miss the core of change and freedom that's a part of our lives. We miss one of the core areas of change and the core areas of freedom that God has given us through his son Jesus' sacrifice. And so, how do we go about finding the ruling desires or the idols of our heart? And I promise you, okay, I I got a blue sheet in your bulletin That's your homework. You get to do homework now. But I promise you, if you go through this, you will find things that grab hold of your heart. You will find things that have taken root in your life, and we all have them, and we just miss them. And so some of the questions you might ask yourself are simple, like, what do I love most, right? What do I fear or fear happening or fear losing the most, What do I hope in the most? You might ask this. When things go wrong and things don't work out well, where do you run for refuge? Where do you run for peace? Where do you run to make everything okay and and for safety and security in those times? What's your first go-to reaction? Last question I'll ask is this. If you had to answer the question, what would make me satisfied? What would make life okay and as it should be? and here's a hint if it's anything but jesus christ and his life in me you have an idol right and so uh, a guy that the staff is reading a, a book called gospel trees and he defines idolatry this way a, as we dive in anything or anyone that begins to capture our hearts minds and affections more than god anyone or anything that begins to capture our heart minds and affections more than God. And so we're continuing our series of identity and action, and we began with this big picture of grace. It's not just this thing that saved us a long time ago, but it's still the powerful operating system of God in our lives based on the person of Jesus that is working and changing and transforming us and securing us to the, to the end. And then we, we've looked at what God is like and what is his posture towards us. And that posture looks a whole, a whole lot more like a good heavenly father than a, good, than a stern heavenly judge for us. And we've looked at his posture. We've looked at what he declares us to be, our identity. Right? Because it doesn't really matter how you define yourself. It matters who God declares you to be. And so it doesn't matter what your thoughts say that you are. It doesn't matter what others have defined you as. And it doesn't matter if your performance says you're one thing or another. It matters who God in Christ declares you to be. And then we turned the corner a few weeks ago to the action part, to the implications for everyday life. And the first thing it sets us free to do is it sets us free to treasure Christ. Apart from Christ, you are doomed and enslaved to living your life for some earthly treasure, for something on this earth to satisfy, something on this earth to fill you. But you have this eternal gap within you, and it never quite works. It doesn't even come close. And then you meet Jesus Christ, and you can live for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, your Lord. And last week, Josiah opened us for us that we are free to serve God and others. He worked through Romans 6 and 7, and the background of Romans 6 and 7 is this. We are enslaved to sin. We have no choice but to obey sin as a master. We have no choice but for slaves' dominance to push us in any direction until we meet Christ. And in Christ, we can present our lives, we can present our bodies, we can present our members as instruments of righteousness and blessing and life and We're set free by Jesus to do that. And then today, we're going to continue to unpack how the gospel sets us free, and we're going to run into this little word that we don't talk about very much, we don't understand very much, and yet is such a core issue in every one of our lives, the issue of idolatry. What does my heart set its affections and hope on the most? And so that's what we're going to be looking at today, that our heart is always producing something to worship. And and here's the crazy thing. You have a lifetime experience of it letting you down. You have a lifetime of experience realizing that when I get this amount of money, then things are going to be okay. And you get that amount of money, and all of a sudden, that's not nearly enough. You've got to have more. And you've got to buy more with it. And you've got to fill the house with more stuff. It never quite is enough, is it? Or, if I just get a relationship, that's what's going to fix everything. And you've had a relationship, and it didn't fix everything. In fact, it broke some other stuff. And But you're like, man, I am no quitter. Next relationship's going to do it. Next relationship's going to do it. Right? And so we look for something. Are my kids' accomplishment? Are my kids' behavior? They were so good in church today. Life is good. Those miserable, rotten things embarrassed me to no end today. Life is terrible. We win the game. We lose the game. Hopes rise, hope fall. Hope rise, hope falls. We are always finding something to latch our affections and our well-being to. Something other than God. And so we have a lifetime experience of being let down by the things we trust. And since we're not quitters, we just try, 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 try again. Again. But the truth I hope to drive home with this message is Jesus alone is worthy of your affections, your highest affections. Jesus alone is the weight of your love and nothing else. Everything else will crumble underneath that weight except for him. So we'll be in Jeremiah chapter 17 today. Jeremiah chapter 17, 5 through 10. And it says this, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man. And makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its root into the stream. And he does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green. And he is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind to give to each according to their ways. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray that the gracious work of your Holy Spirit and your word would open up our hearts You would show us the things that have grabbed hold of our affections. You would show us the things that clamor day in and day out for the worship that you alone are worthy of. You'd show us the things that we fear so much and that are so unstable. But don't just show us that, Lord. Show us Jesus over and over and over again. Show us Jesus, the worthy one. Show us Jesus, the redeemer. Show us Jesus, the refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Show us Jesus We pray for that in his name. Amen. So the gospel sets us free from the deadly idols of the heart. The gospel sets us free from the deadly idols of the heart. Now, the passage we're doing today is in the Old Testament. So you may like, you know, where's the gospel in the Old Testament? That's a whole other class and study. But I do want to take a couple of New Testament passages and lay a foundation that Jeremiah is going to build on top of. And so Jeremiah is going to give us the framework. What is life like when your heart drifts from God to something else? And then what is life like when your heart turns towards the Lord, not away, and walks with him imperfectly but in his direction? And then he's going to do that. But then the difference between those two you would think is so easy to see. But since most of our idols are really good things gone wrong, The heart is very deceptive and very tricky, and the difference between the two is so subtle at times that we don't realize it. And so if our heart is deceitful, we need somebody that sees our heart with a better clarity to rescue us. And so that's what Jeremiah is going to build on. But the first passage I want to look at is 1 Thessalonians 1, um, 8 through 10. 1 Thessalonians 1, 8 through 10. Let me go ahead and just read that. And so in verse, I'm going to start in verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. Now listen to this. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So when it comes to conversion, how is conversion described in this passage? You turned from idols. Right? So you lived your lives, and these were probably physical idols, you lived your lives enslaved to this false God, and it was a life-dominating enslavement. And so if if the weather was going to be good and your crops grow, if your prosperity was going to grow, if your kids were going to stay healthy, if disease wasn't going to enter your house, you had to make sure this God was happy. What's the problem? How on earth do I know what this God wants in order to stay happy? So I just kind of run in these circles trying to please some unknown God, unspeaking God, unhearing God, and, and, and weather works out. But then I'm not prospering anymore, and I live in fear. Then disease hits my house. Then I'm not prospering anymore, and I live in fear and guilt and bondage to this God who can't hear me and can't talk that I'm trying to manipulate to make life work out better again. You were rescued from the enslaving power of idols to what? To serve the living and true God. You were rescued to serve the living and true God. So what is conversion? It's being set free from an enslavement to live on this unknown and unanswering and unfeeling and unhearing false God to serve the true and living God. Do you know why you exist on this planet? to serve the living and true God. Do you know why you exist on this planet? To make much of him, to glorify him, and enjoy him forever. That's the whole reason you exist. And so what did conversion do? It set you free from the enslavement to an idol that can't hear or speak, and it set you free to the purpose you, hold, you exist for, that you're designed for, that you breathe for, and that you live for. It restored the original intent of God in your life, to serve and to glorify God. And so it's not like, oh man, great, I'm freed from one slavery to another. No, you're freed from one slavery to the slavery that you are meant to live in. The one to God who is gentle and lowly and gives rest to the soul. To the one to God who is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that's who you get to serve. And you get to serve while you wait for his son from heaven. And so, I actually had this conversation this week. I've had it, I can't tell you how many times. Where it's like, so people just wait for the next season to be faithful, right? So, so when this next thing happens in my life, then I'll be faithful. I'll, I'll be faithful in a church. I'll be faithful in serving. I'll be faithful in my devotions and quiet time and walking with the Lord. And say, so, look, I'm in college. So I don't really have to be faithful now, right? When I graduate college, that's when it's going to really happen, Wait, wait, I've graduated. When I get to the new city that I'm going to really be established in, that's when I'll be faithful. No, 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 once I get that career going, because, you know, I've got to start a job, and once that job starts, it's really busy. Once I get settled into my career, then I'm going to do it. Then I'm going to be faithful. Then I'm going to go. Oh, I know, when I get married, that's when I'm going to happen. But, you know, when you're married and have a job and you're super busy, what do you want to do? Oh, I want to travel before I have those kids weighing me down. I want to see the world. So you travel, but then, you know, when I have kids, that's when I'm, I promise, when I have kids, faithful. And then what happens, young parents of young kids, what's the deal? Oh, man, I'm way too busy with these kids to be faithful. I can't do that now, maybe, when the kids are older. And there's always some faithfulness out in the future. And I want to point you to this passage that we're looking at in 1 Thessalonians. Faithfulness is where you are today. In the capacity and season you're in today, it's not something in the future. There will never be a future where it's easy to be faithful. There will never be a future where you kind of arrive and now following God's easy. No, it's, will I today, with the day God has given me, be faithful? Why do I say that? Because there are only two time periods in your life. Time period one, today, serve the living and true God. Time period two, do you see it in the text? Jesus comes back and we enter eternal glory and everything is completed and everything is the way it's supposed to be. So I have today to serve the Lord and be faithful and I have his, the son coming from heaven and I have that day. And you know what? You'll have a, however many days God gives you in between to have today to serve the Lord and that day. And then tomorrow you'll have today and that day. Be faithful in the season and capacity that you have to be faithful to the Lord today, while you actively wait for the great day that's coming. Right? And so, that's First Thessalonians. Conversion is a freedom from idolatry to serve Jesus, glorify Jesus. The second passage I want to read is in 1 John. And 1 John at the end, chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. I want to set it up. And so, how many of you have read 1 John? Okay, sorry. I mean, I don't embarrass anybody. So, if you read 1 John... If you were really paying attention by the end, here's something you notice. It ends very abruptly, and it ends in a way that's very strange because it's like not in context. It doesn't make sense. All right, so you're going through First John, and it's like this is how you live with assurance of salvation, assurance of salvation, assurance of salvation, light and love, light and love, assurance of salvation. You read through the Gospel of John, and John is like, here, I want you to believe in Jesus. Jesus will give you eternal life. I want you to believe in Jesus. 1 John, assurance you've believed in Jesus. Assurance you've believed in Jesus. And then you get to the end, and it's like, wait, where did this come from? The word idol is nowhere in 1 John. And do you know how 1 John ends? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And you're like, wait. If, If you're following along, you're like, wait, where did this come from? This doesn't make sense. And even in the context, it might be like, wait, why is this here? But it's not dealing with conversion. It's dealing with the ongoing Christian life of assurance, right? And so the ongoing Christian life is keep yourself from idols. Let's look at that in the text. So in 1 John 5, 19 through 21, And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and uh, that we may know him who is true and that we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. How does that fit? How does that close the book? Let's see if we can navigate it. So how does this passage lead into it? Jesus came and gave us understanding of the gospel. Jesus came and he showed us our sin and he showed us that we can have a relationship with God through his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus came and he awoken us to the truth of the gospel. That's good news. And then Jesus came and he helped us understand your life is placed inside of God. And it's not just placed inside of God. Your life is hidden inside of Christ. You have this living, vital relationship with Jesus. Uh, you have this union with Christ. Your life is placed with Christ, and it's hidden in the heavenly places in Christ. We're hidden there. I was like, this is awesome. And what else did he tell us? God is the living and true God, and he's the one that gives eternal life. Yes. So why does that fit with the ending? If Jesus has brought us the gospel, if God is the only true and living God, if our lives are hidden with Christ forever in a relationship that secures us, why would we ever go back to a dead idol that is powerless to hear and act and speak? If there's a God who gives us understanding by his voice and speaks into our life and intercedes on our behalf, why do we keep going back to this stuff that is dead? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Why would you let anything earthly grab your affections when you've been won by the love of God that is rich in mercy and abounds in love for us? Why would you run away from a love that is real and immense to love something else that can't love you back? Why would you live for the approval and the praise of people? Why would you live for people to clap for you? Why would you live for people to accept you when the perfect heavenly judge looks at you and says, you're mine? you're forgiven, you're accepted. Why on earth would you live your life measuring your performance? My performance, I'm good enough. My performance, I'm good enough. Why would you live for your own merit? And, and, and Why would you live on, based on the performance of your life spiritually or, or in some activity when Jesus, the perfect son of God, lived and died and rose again to clothe you in his perfection? And then why on earth do we worry so much? Why is anxiety the word that just about everyone in this room would describe for themselves? When our God neither slumbers nor sleeps. When our God knows when two sparrows that are sold for like a penny, he knows if some random sparrow dies in the woods somewhere that nobody ever knows about. You think he doesn't know so much more about where you are and where you're headed and what you need? You think he doesn't care so much more than a penny sparrow in the woods about you? And yet we live with this toilsome anxiety because our hearts get pulled away from a God who lives and hears and speaks and acts to a God that's not a God at all. And so 1 John 5, 21, little children Keep yourselves from idols. And then the psalm that Tom read earlier transitions us. Maybe we feel this way, but certainly there would be the world around us with this mentality. Where is your God? Life comes crushing down. Where is your God? Things are really hard for you right now. Where is your God? All that betrayal and rejection. Where is your God? Suffering. Where is your God? Where is your God? God? And the mocking cries of maybe your own heart, like, where is God? Because you've probably asked that question before, haven't you? And the mocking cries of a lost world against God, where is God with all this stuff in your life? What's the answer? Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Our God is sovereignly ruling every atom in the universe is exactly where it's supposed to be. Because our God sovereignly upholds all things by the word of his power. Where is God? God is running the universe for his perfect purposes. Where is God sitting enthroned above these little ants and grasshoppers, which is the amassed might of humanity? Where is God? He is in the heavens. And what in the world is God doing? He is doing whatever he pleases. Do you know what God pleases to do? He pleases to work out an eternal plan of redemption that's big and global and forever. And do you know what else he's doing? He is working out a plan of redemption for your little life to be formed more into the image of Christ and be ushered into his glorious presence forever. You know what God is up to? He's purposefully shaping something in you. You know what God is up to? He hasn't left you alone to face it on your own. You know what God is up to? His pleasure, which is to look after and secure and redeem and forgive and to shape a people for himself. You know what God is up to? He's working in your life. Redemption. He's working in the people whose lives are touched by your life. Redemption. He's working on the eight billion souls on this planet to work out a plan of redemption. Where's God? I don't get it he's working out the pleasure of a redemptive plan not a destroying plan for his people and so maybe we could turn the tables and this is what Psalm 115 does where is your God right where is your God if it's not the true God where is yours their gods are silver and gold the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. They have hands but do, not, uh, but do not feel. They have feet but they do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Where is your God? If you don't believe in the living and true God, where is your God? Because you know there have been moments in your life the money didn't do what it was supposed to. There have been moments in your life the relationship ultimately betrayed you, there's been moments in your life where the injury sidelines you. There have been moments in your life where if your trust was not in the Lord God, you were let down and destroyed. Where was your God in the moment? If your hope was in something other than Jesus, where was he? Did your God answer? No, there's no sound in their mouths. Did your God reach up and comfort you so that you could comfort others when it was their turn? No, because they have arms that can't move. Did your God listen to anything you had to say in that moment? No, because they have ears and are utterly deaf to the cries of those who trust in them. Your idols don't care when they have left you destroyed on the sidelines. But there's a God who is merciful and compassionate and has tender mercies for us, who delights to comfort those in every affliction so they're able to comfort others in their time of need. There's a God who is, draws near and is active and alive. And so... Now we'll get into the message. That's just the introduction part, right? So, Jeremiah 17. So that's the foundation we're building on, is there is a true and living God who our hopes, worship, affections can be uh, banked on, built our lives on, and there are countless other things that want your affections and want your attention and want to take you away from them. And so keep yourselves from idols. Do not let them have a place. And now Jeremiah is going to build a framework of what is life and experience like living under each one. So, in the first one, drifting to idols leaves us increasingly empty, dry, and fruitless. Drifting to our idols uh, leaves us increasingly empty, dry, and fruitless. So, if you've been a follower of Jesus very long, I'm going to walk over here into the air while we're talking. If you have been a follower of Jesus, for, and I get hot. I don't know if y'all do. I'm apologizing. You're allowed to bring blankets in the coats. I'm not. Right? Okay, so you have had the experience in your Christian life, if you've done it long enough, for life to become dry, to feel like your purpose is sapped out of you, to, to feel like I'm, I'm, I'm just this empty shell. And for you, what that may feel like is you just become numb to the world. And you just kind of go through the motions. Or for you, what it may feel like is you feel like you're on a hamster wheel and you go faster and faster and faster, but it doesn't feel like you're going anywhere. You just work harder and harder harder only to fall further and further behind. And the experience of your life is, I work harder and fall further behind. Work harder, fall further behind. Or I just kind of go through the motions every day. Life has lost its purpose and life has lost its joy and its, its meaning, right? It's fallen Away. So often, now please hear me say this before I go on, the only reason that happens is not idolatry, right? That's not the only explanation. There's others we could talk about. But what I do want to say for this message is, one of the primary reasons, one of the first places to look when life starts to just grind, one of the first places to look when life goes numb, one of the first places to look is, have I been living life... Apart from God. Has my soul been drifting to God? And by the way, if your soul drifts from God, it's not drifting towards nothing. It's drifting towards something else. We are all worshipers who always worship. Your heart will go to something to worship, something to have its affections on. And so if you find yourself in a place where life has gone numb or it just grinds more and more and more, one of the first places you want to stop and look is, okay, God, has, have, I tried, have I been trying to live my life separated from you? Meaning, have I been living my life for some other hope and some other object of my affections? Right? And so that's so often the issue. And, and the thing is, it's probably so subtle. For most of us in this room, not all of us, but for most of this, us in this room, it probably started off with something really, really good. Work. Really, really good. Family. Really, really good. Kids. Really, really good. You know, an honorable relationship or marriage. It probably started as something super good. But that something that was good began to dominate our heart so that it, it became a ruling desire of our heart, not just an appropriate desire of our heart. And then without even knowing it, we wake up, and it may be a long time, like God's way back there, and we finally start to wake up. Why is life grinding so badly? Why is there all this fretting anxiety? Why do I feel so empty inside? And it is God's absolute sheer grace that you feel that. So if you're sitting here today, I want to encourage you. If you feel any of those things, it is God's sheer mercy. Because God delights to turn your heart back to himself. And the best thing that you can ever have in your life is for God to turn your heart to him and not let you keep going the way things are. Drifting to our idols will leave us empty, dry, and fruitless. So let's look at this. It opens up, and one of the things this passage is meant to do is it's meant to compare the blessed and the cursed life so that when the things are different, you see in bold contrast the opposite, or the contrast between these two different lives. And so look at it. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. Like who, what is it like to live apart from God? What is it like to drift into idolatry? Cursed. Now, I want to define cursed for you this way. It is God's active disfavor towards someone that leads to harm and loss. God's active disfavor towards someone that leads to harm and loss. And so I wanna separate that out a bit for this word and for blessed, because, or I'll tell you in a second. And so the first thing is it's a status. You are under the displeasure of God. And then the second thing is it's an experience, harm and loss. Now why is that important? Because man, I just saw for some random reason on a news site, um, oh dude, what's the Amazon guy's name? Bezos, and he's on his mega super yacht, and man, he's ripped. Have you seen him without a shirt on? That dude is ripped for an old dude, and he's got a mega yacht, and he's got a supermodel, and he's got billions and billions of dollars, and he can't. That doesn't look very cursed to me. Does that to you? It's like I, I might could, you know, not the supermodel. I've got that, you know. But the, yeah, the mega yacht, right? sorry, I don't want to get in trouble. But the mega yacht and the billions of dollars, and if I were a little more ripped, that'd be okay. That doesn't look like curse to us. But what is true regardless, by God's definition, he is under the active displeasure of the Lord. And if he stays that way, he'll spend eternity that way, and he will suffer the eventual harm and loss. Why I think that's important is because the other word, blessed, is the same thing. You are under the active favor of God and will receive good and fullness and abundance. You are under the active favor of God and will receive good and favor and abundance. Why is it important? Because I don't really care about Jeff Bezos, but there's times where I don't feel abundant life. I don't feel like God's on my side. It's irrelevant the status we have as people imperfectly headed towards God and not heart turned away from God is blessed under the act of favor of God. Which means at some point, the experience of abundance and and, and goodness and fullness will come, right? But it's true now regardless of how I feel, regardless of what I'm seeing with my eyes. And so, The people whose heart strays from the Lord and you and me, when our hearts stray from the Lord, we are straying into his displeasure. Now, as his children, we don't ever reach the status of cursed, but we do experience some of the rub and the grind of his cursing, his good discipline that's meant to train us in righteousness, right? And so, cursed is the man that does what? Trust in man. Like when I say my hope is in something on this earth, my hope is in myself and the kind of righteousness that I can accomplish. My hope is in myself and what a name I can make for myself. My hope is in myself and the business that I can build. My hope is in myself and the accomplishments academically or athletically or or career that I can get to. My hope is in that. My hope is 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 in this person, this other person that I can pursue. My hope is that somebody and people will do what they're supposed to do to fulfill my life. Cursed is anybody that says my hope is built on something on this earth or someone on this earth. And look at the other description, whose heart turns away from the Lord. And so he doesn't use the word idol, but he's talking about idols. You have put faith in something other than God. Idolatry. Your heart has turned from God to something else. Idol. Well, what is life like when our hearts drift? Do you see the description? It's like a shrub in the desert. Now, if you have ever been to the desert, there is a very particular kind of vegetation. It's sparse. It's not super clumped up together. The leaves are not as green as they are if you were to go someplace that's well watered. They usually have some kind of thorns or prickly stuff on them. Like It is harsh and hostile and and leggy and thin. What is life like when your heart drifts from God? You're like a dried up shrub with lots of thorns sitting in the desert, dried out. No water, no life. And then it's empty. It's like vegetation growing in a salted land. You see that? You salt the land to kill off all vegetation so eventually you can use the land for something else. And so it's empty, it's alone, it's barren, and there's no fruit whatsoever. Do you see that description? It's like the parched. Places and the drier your life gets, and the more it empties of its purpose, and the more you lose ground in this race, the more you just try harder and harder and harder, and the more God wants to say, "No, just come." Like, listen, Ezekiel, uh, what is it? Ezekiel fourteen. You have a group of leaders in Israel, and it says they have taken their idols into their hearts. That's what we're talking about today. And they come to inquire of the prophet, and God has a conversation with the prophet. Should I listen to them when they come? And what would your answer be? Heck, no, you shouldn't listen to them, God. They took their idols in their heart. These no-good people are about to get us kicked out of the land. and You should be done with them. What does God say? If they come and inquire of you as a prophet, I'll answer them. Why will I answer them, it says? That I may lay hold of their hearts. And so if you find your life drifting into idolatry, if you find the grind is increasing and the anxiety is increasing, and if you find the the numbness is increasing and the dryness is increasing and the fruitlessness is increasing, and you you find, like, yes, that's me. and, And I believe it's progressive. It's not all at once. Yes, I see myself progressing in this direction, or I'm all the way there. What's the good news? God would rejoice for you to return and inquire of him because he would love to have your heart back. We might cut each other off for it. God does not cut us off when we return to him. And so drifting idols leaves us increasingly empty and dry and fruitless. But look at the second thing. Actively believing Jesus leads to blessing, stability, and fruitfulness, even when life is hard. Actively believing in Jesus leads to blessing, and stability, and fruitfulness, even when life is hard. Y'all know we do the backyardigans. We have a company, not incorporated. And so we were occasionally, we hadn't done it in a while because we've been busy, but we helped somebody with their brakes one time, brakes and rotors, take the tire off, take the caliper off, take the rotor off, and start putting things back together and the caliper won't squeeze, meaning it's not putting the brakes on the thing to stop it anymore. I go, great. Well, you know, he's got three others. Do you really need the fourth? Let's be honest. Yes, you do. So you take it back off and get all the way back down. And you had to, he had to replace the caliper, but we did, you know, we did that. And then start putting it all back together. And he takes off, and guess what? I mean, this is like 1 o'clock. I want to be done by 10. And so it's like 1 o'clock. <laughs> His car's squealing as it goes. like, you know, there's this rubbing on metal. And I like, go, oh, great. Turn the radio up. <laughs> Everything will be fine. It's an old car. <laughs> Just deal with it. Nope, get it back in, jack it back up, take the wheel off, take the caliper off. Take the rotor off. Try to find the problem. So what I would say that applies to us is when you find yourself facing an idol, what do you do? Turn the radio up of distraction? Like, I don't hear that. (laughs) It's an old car anyways, right? Or, you know, we could just ignore the problem for a while. Or, you know, we can just drown it out or how do we, how do, what do we do when we find an idol? We go all the way back to the problem, where the problem is, and then we start building from there in the right direction. We go all the way back to the source of the squealing or the source of the no breaks, and we fix it and build out. And so here's what that looks like in your spiritual life. It looks like confession that goes all the way down to the place of worship. And so... Um, there's some people taking this, this counseling class with us, and so they'll know this statement. We do what we do. Like, why do I do what I do? Have you ever asked that question? Why do I do what I do? Like, that just seems so stupid. Why to do, do it again? We do what we do because we want what we want, right? We have a set of desires and motives spurring our behavior. Well, where do those desires come from? Because we worship what we worship. And so if I want to go all the way back to the source of the problem, I don't just look at my short fuse, I don't just look at my hurtful words. I don't just look at my gossip. I look at, okay, what desires am I trying to meet? What motivates that kind of word and thinking and action? What's doing that? And then when I have this set of desires fleshed out, I go back and say, what has captured my heart's affections that's throwing this stuff off? And so you could, if if you wanted to have a simple, like I like simple visual things, you could just create three columns. Here's the things capturing my heart here's the desires that swall that, here's what's motivating me, and here's the thing I do and say and think that aren't appropriate. And we repent. We go down there and we confess it, we call it what God calls it, we repent of it, we start turning away from things very specifically and very individually, and then we start moving towards, like, okay, my heart's been worshipped by the approval of others. What what am I going to worship now? I have a redeemer. I have a good shepherd, so I don't really have any lack at all. I have a refuge and I have a strength. So now I'm filling out the God I worship in living color, not generics. And then I start looking at what is the goal of my life? I want to please the Lord. I want to glorify the Lord so I can enjoy him more and more now and forever and forever. That's my desires of my heart. And I'm going to say that to myself over and over until I start living it. And then what would it look like to glorify God in my words, thoughts, and actions in this given situation? All the way back to the problem so that you can build out God's way for a new worship and affection, spring new desires that will ultimately lead to new fruit in your life. So there's a whole different status for those who believe. We don't have to, I'll I'll just point out the contrast really. So you're blessed. You're under the God's favor as you move towards the Lord, as your heart doesn't turn away but turns towards. And then look at some of the things that are the same. There's heat, deserts are hot, right? And there's drought, deserts have no water, Right? So what is true of the blessed person? Do they wither and crumble into a shrub under the heat of life? No, they face the heat, and what happens? They don't fear. Their leaves stay bright green. Well, wait, here's a drought. What are you going to do? Keep bearing fruit. Even though there's a drought, how is that possible? Because they have a different source of life. Do you see that? Instead of being a shrub alone in the desert, they're a tree in dry, hot places tapped into a life-giving source of water. The person whose faith is in the Lord sinks his root into a life. You might think of it this way, I'm the vine, life and its source, and you're just a branch. You're a tree with its roots sunk down into a water system of faith and a, and a sovereign and redeeming Lord. And, and so you don't have to be afraid. The heat of life is going to hit. You live in a fallen world just like I do. Just like every lost person out there, heat is going to hit. But what's going to happen inside my heart when heat hits it, when circumstances hit it? Faith in the Lord is going to come alive and, and secure me and give me endurance and stability. Or faith in something else is going to crumble out from under me. Blessed is the one whose active faith. Now, that doesn't mean perfect faith. That means it's just like I'm I'm choosing to believe. I'm choosing to rehearse the goodness of the gospel. I'm choosing to to remind myself of the truth of the gospel. My heart's turning towards and not away in suffering, by the way, is a better way to say that. So what are we going to do? And again, the reason I want you to start putting specific truths on this is, I don't know if the pamphlet says it or somewhere else, change doesn't happen in fuzzy land. Right? It doesn't happen when things are all blurry and fuzzy and like, oh, maybe my heart's captured by something and, and life's so busy I don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing and that just kind of came out and so it's just been a bad day and, and I've just got this blurry spiritual picture of my heart. But when I've got a clear, a, a, a clear picture of my heart and then a clearer picture of Jesus and what he's accomplished, That's where change happens. And that's why I want to encourage you to homework, like take 20 or 30 minutes. I didn't write it, so you know it's good. Um, and, and, And so do your homework and like dig into that and start like labeling what does this look like and then how does it show up in my life and then what are all these, you know, what are the doing and thinking saying so that you can attack it specifically with a more specific truth of who God is for you in Christ, a more specific truth of what your life is meant to be here for and not something else. One more point, we'll hit it quickly. Trusting your heart is dangerous, but trusting the Lord with your heart is freedom. Trusting your heart is dangerous, trusting the Lord with your heart is freedom. Now by heart, I mean the operating center of your life. So yes, there's emotions there, but there's thoughts there, there's will there. It is the the operating system of your life. And so, great piece of advice I wanna pass on to you. You ready for it? Like, it's going to help you in life. Don't trust your heart. Sucker's a liar, and he loves to make messes of your life. You know what else? Don't follow your heart. Now, I know that like Disney wants you to, and I know the movies make it all seem great. Don't follow your heart. Don't trust your heart, and great Verse for that, the heart is deceitful. It wants to trick you. Does it want to trick you to love God more? No, because it's desperately wicked or uh, incurably sick, it wants to trick you into destroying your life. It wants to trick you into thinking anything other than God is better than God. It wants to trick you into thinking sin is pleasure and righteousness is misery. It wants to trick you into following the, the passions of the flesh, whatever yours happened to be. And it's deceitful. It'll lie to you and lie to you and lie to you until you make a train wreck of your life, and then it'll laugh at you and tell you to do it some more. Don't trust your heart. It's deceitful, and it's wicked. And then look at how he describes it. Like, who can even understand it? You're like, man, that doesn't describe me. I'm a good person. I get it. Me too. How many times do your random thoughts drift to, Oh, I could get revenge on that person that hurt me. And I, I just wish, man, if they got in a car wreck. Do y'all ever think stuff like that? No, not me. No. I would never have a fantasy of revenge that things would work out badly for somebody that, that hurt me. You know what else I would never do? I would never have some random fantasy in my mind about escaping to some perfect pleasure and desire in my heart. I would never have a despicable thought in my heart. Maybe you do, though, every once in a while. The heart is wicked. It is throwing up lust. It's throwing up temptations. It's throwing up revenges. It's throwing up gossips. It's throwing up how to get even. Just over and over and over. It's so wicked. Don't trust it. And so you're like, who can understand it? Where does this stuff come from? I wasn't even thinking about that. I was trying to have a quiet time, and my brain's over here with some stupid, like, drifting into escape. Who can understand it? Thankfully, someone can. Jesus, God the Father can understand it. I search the heart and I test the mind. And it might be scary to you what comes next to give people what they deserve because it's an accountability passage. No. There's a passage of Scripture, Psalm 139, that's like super comforting that uses these same words. Do you know how the psalm starts off? You have searched me and you've known me. And then he goes into, you know my words before they hit my tongue. You know my thoughts before I have them. Like on and on and on with the contours of depth of God's knowledge of you. And that would be really, really terrifying, wouldn't it? For God to know everything you think. Because I know you aren't going to tell me that you had those kind of thoughts that I just mentioned, but I bet you do. God saw them. So you got to tell God that. Terrifying. David, in the psalm, if you interpret it one way, is even like, how can I escape? Like, how can I get you out of my head? Because it just accumulates more and more guilt. And then he comes around throughout the psalm to discovering, wow, your works are so amazingly astonishing. How does he end the psalm? Lord, search me and know me. He's come to know something about God, the holy, blazing eyes of God That makes it safe to uncover self. That's pretty astonishing, right? I search the heart and I test the mind. Does that make you recoil in fear? Let me cover it up. Fig leaves. I search the heart and I test the mind. God, well then go look. Because anything there that's keeping me from you, I don't want it. Anything there that's breaking the experience of you out of my life, I don't want it. Anything there that is an affront to your holy character, I don't want it. So search me and try me. Whatever is there that grieves you, get it out of me because I want life and and eternal life to come from me. I want to glorify you. I don't want that stuff there. And so the Lord searches the heart and he tests the mind. But because Jesus came lived perfectly, died, and rose again. You don't have to be afraid of anything that he finds inside your heart. In fact, it's ultimate freedom, as Trace quoted a couple of times, you can be fully known. Search the heart and test the mind. And instead of being afraid of rejection, what you will be met with by God is you'll be perfectly loved at the exact same time. And isn't that one of the great desires of your heart and your life? For somebody to know you and have no fear that they would turn you away. But for somebody to know you and to love you more because of what they see there, not less. The heart is deceitful. Don't trust it. But it is so corrupt, there's one who understands it and wants you to give it to him. Lord, search me. Try me. Cleanse me. Lead me. Let's look at a few practical things as we close out. So what are the top few idols that you have identified and how do they show up in your life? What are the top few idols you have identified and how they show up in your life? That's called homework. Now, I'm going to just read a couple because I bet this isn't you at all, but the guy sitting next to you might need it, right? Performance. Performance for yourself or performance for others. Hmm. Love of money. No, I don't love money. I just need more of it. I don't love money. I just want a new car. I don't love money. Another bedroom at the house wouldn't hurt though, would it? But I don't love money, I promise you. Okay, we'll go give it all to the poor and follow Jesus. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's, that's out of context. All right. We don't love money. Physical appearance. Anybody post an actual be real, be real? Here's what be real looks like at my house. Child, you were yelling at your sister right before you took that picture. Don't pretend like everything was good. <laughs> I do the same thing. But no, we, don't, we don't love, we don't trust our physical appearance. No. We don't, we don't take little shots to make wrinkles go away. We'll stop meddling, right? Anybody Anybody put their hope in being respected or admired? Like they, I promise you, you'll find a couple. If you don't, let's sit down together. We'll figure them out, right? So what are they and how do they show up in your life? So we're starting to... Be specific in understanding our heart, our sins, where our affections go, because we want to be specific in how we come back to the Lord, how we turn our hearts back around. Second, what would uh, a repentance plan look like for one of the idols you discover? Let's just get in the habit of repentance. What if it was one of the commitments of every single day of your life that, you know what, I just want to be better at confessing sin every day. Like, man, that seems so negative and what a downer. If sin is what destroys your relationship with God, and if sin is offensive to a holy God, and if sin is part of the barrier between you and God, why wouldn't you want to grow and get rid of it? Because you're going to find more of God as you do. So what if our goal is I just want to confess better every day because I want more of God. I want more of my experience of Jesus every day. And so I already gave you kind of the application I would do there. As you get back to the idols of your heart you just identified and as you start looking at the desires and motives and then you start looking at the specifics of how it fleshes out. A repentance plan will look like filling those three columns and what would right worship look like? Who is Jesus and who is God that is so much better than what I'm banking hope on? What's a better motive for my life than what I'm currently living out? And then what would fresh fruitfulness and faithfulness look like in my words, thoughts, and actions? So if you were to just fill that out, that would be a good start to a repentance plan. And then lastly, invite the Lord to search your heart and to know you and to reveal sin to you. That's Psalm uh, 139, verses 23 and 24. Ask the Lord to search you. Ask the Lord to know you. Ask the Lord to reveal your sin to you. Because you can trust him with your sin and failure. You don't have to hide. You don't have to excuse. You don't have to pretend like it's not there. You can come out into the open because Jesus delights to forgive and to be strong on behalf of weak people. And so Jesus frees us from being enslaved to a lesser fear and a lesser hope for a lesser satisfaction. Jesus frees us to find our hope and our worth and our identity and and a better worship and a better place for our affections in himself. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. So Father, in the name of Jesus, we bow. And we realize, even just in moments like this, our hearts really are just so deceitful. Our hearts really are wicked sometimes. But praise your name, we don't stand before you based on our hearts because you're greater than our hearts, your word tells us. We don't stand condemned because there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You don't reject us from what you see in our hearts and see in our lives, even though we did it again and again and again. But where our sin abounds and abounds, oh, your grace abounds all the more. And so I pray that there are people in this room today, including myself, that you would set us free. You would set us free from the drift and you'd set us free from living lives towards something else. Lives that are numb and disconnected and lives that are fretful. And you'd set us free to enjoy and bask and run and pursue your son Jesus Christ. You'd set people free in their marriages that have been entangled by some different defection, some escape or withdrawal, God, that you would draw them back. And Lord, whatever it is that's taken hold of our hearts, pull it out. Only the Holy Spirit is mighty enough to topple our idols and give us a fresh vision of Jesus Christ. Do it, we pray, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. So as we come to our time of invitation, Did you know you were born under the curse? You were cursed when you were born, dead in your sins and trespasses. The greatest curse we ever experience is the curse of sin that leads to death. But God sent his son to live a perfect life, die on a cross for our sins, to be buried and rise again to offer you a new life, adopted, welcome, and accepted. Is that something you've ever done? Have you ever been convicted of your sin? Have you ever turned and put faith in Jesus Christ, active faith in Jesus? Oh, he would welcome you. Come. But maybe for you, I'm a believer, but I see see ways my heart has been drifting. I, I see ways other things are taking hold of my heart, and I see the way they're playing out in my life. And you just wanna come confess that. You just wanna come open your heart back up to the Lord, It's safe to do that. He won't turn it away. Or maybe for you, life has been grinding, life has been numb, and life has been empty. And you just want to come back to the Lord. You just want to turn your heart back to the Lord. How do you need to respond? Let's stand together as we sing, and you respond how the Lord is leading you.